You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. The difference between we are mammoth and our DNA and that of a a sort of more traditional design agency is that we have technology and engineering in our DNA. These these projects that we took on, maybe as pet projects in the beginning, like Dundun, they immediately became something material. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marek Pawlowski, the founder of Mex, and that was Craig Bryant, who is my guest on this edition of the podcast. So Craig is the co-founder and CEO of We Are Mammoth, which is an agency that was originally based out of Chicago but is now operating as a remote-first company. They've got a team of about 25 who are distributed all across the US. And we were introduced by Parish Hanna, Director of Interaction Economics at Ford, who we interviewed, I think, in episode 15 of this podcast, if you want to go back in the archives and check that one out. There are a couple of reasons that I really wanted to talk to Craig. Firstly, I'm compelled by this concept of remote companies, particularly in the creative industries. I think that operating with a natively remote structure has got the potential to address some of the really big challenges which are facing agencies at the moment. The shortage of talent, um, keeping overhead costs low and reconfigurable, during those periods when your client demand is slower than expected. Not to mention that possibility of being able to tap into a much wider pool of diversity and creativity from all over the world. And the second reason is that We Are Mammoth is one of the few agencies which has managed to incubate and sustain successful software ventures of its own. It's something a lot of agencies talk about, but very few actually manage to do. And Craig and his team have actually done it twice. They've built kinhr.com and dundun.com, software as a service, SaaS businesses, which are scaling and have been out there in the market for several years already. So we talk about all of that, as well as a bit of Craig's personal story, how he transitioned from being a musician who, by his own admission, didn't really even know how to turn on a computer into the expert he is today in digital design. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. It's very good of you to join us for the show. Whereabouts are you dialing in from today? I'm in lovely springtime Chicago, and uh, I'm looking out the window. I work from home these days. We're a remote company, and I see little tiny buds on the trees. So springtime is on the way. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear it. And you said the key word there, really, in remote, and I've got a feeling that's going to end up being one of the major themes of what we talk about today, because clearly there are some very interesting things that you have been doing around remote as a strategy for design agencies. But we do have a bit of a tradition on the MEX podcast, which is our show and tell with our guests. And I know you've been off doing a bit of research to find something to talk about in the show and tell section. Uh, Are you brave enough to go first or would you like me to, to jump in? 
I, I'm happy to go first. You go for it. What have you found oh. for us? <laughs> so my show and tell piece is actually a very small, easy to read book called One Small Step Can Change Your Life, The Kaizen Way. And it's a little bit far away from, you know, user experience, but I actually see it the opposite. It's very close. So this book is about encountering and pushing through big change through very small steps. So if you think about someone who's a, a chain smoker, for example, going cold turkey for them sets off this fight or flight emotion in their brain, right? Their cortisol levels go through the roof and they can't even bear the thought of thinking about quitting. Well, this book sort of coaches the readers through approaching a large change via little tiny, small routine steps every day. So smoking, for example, instead of um, cutting, cutting out a whole pack of cigarettes every day, instead, Kaizen might preach you Take the first cigarette that you're going to smoke in the morning, snap it in half and throw it away. And then the rest of the time you smoke regularly and then you do that for a couple of weeks and then you sort of slowly ramp it up. And throughout that process, you're training your brain to avoid this fight or flight reaction to everything. So that obviously has sort of personal life um, uh, exercises that I can use, but also for for the workplace and for our products, I've been thinking about ways to introduce Kaizen into customer experience. So when we think about kinhr.com, which is our HR software product that we uh, have built and are marketing right now, it's a big change for a company to change their HR system, change their whole process for new hire onboarding and calendaring and employee data retention and whatnot. So using Kaizen as a way to introduce through small routine steps, this notion of big change with the big positive consequence that once you're up and running with a product like kinhr.com, you're actually creating a much better work environment for your employees. So that's been my big big idea for the past couple of months. Uh, I've sent copies around to our employees, and we're starting to sort of work that into our daily rapport with one another. Again, we're a remote company, so, you know, it's it's tough to get together. And books like this that we share are one way to sort of share some life experiences. Now, how did you come across the book yourself? Did you go out um, in search of a, a title like this, or was this recommended to you? You know what? I, I think it was a book that was mentioned in another book that I was reading at the time. And that book, I can't actually recall, but it was so sticky for me. And I'll tell you why. My son and I both have terrible handwriting. And every time we broached the subject with my son, who's seven years old, so second grade, he he gets this fight or flight reaction to writing better. So I thought, you know, right at that time when we were discussing this need to improve our handwriting, I thought, you know what, let's do this together. And I'm reading this Kaizen Way book. Why don't we do like two minutes of writing every day and we'll sort of journal it and then we'll talk about it. And that's it. Just two minutes, like lower that stress level, lower the cortisol level, and let's see where it takes us. And we've been doing that for about a month and a half. And it's it's been fantastic. It's helped both of us. We get a little bit of extra time each evening to spend with one another and to talk 
you know, frankly, about how our days were, and then to do this little exercise of trying to write better. It sounds like a really positive example of Kaizen in action. And when you mentioned this one in the show notes uh, before we, we got onto the recording, I was having a look at it and having a little bit of a look into the definition of Kaizen as well. It's one of those words which I think we hear quite often in business management generally, but actually there's quite a lot of nuance to the definition of it, which I was reading up about. And I was particularly struck by this sense that at its core, it seems to be about bringing a more humanized approach to the way you take on tasks. So obviously there's that focus on doing them in small increments and being able to, to overcome that sort of block of we're going to be taking on a really big thing. But when I was reading up about the definition, it seemed to really focus in on that idea that it is something which should try and bring out the, the humanity in the way we approach these things. And yet in business circles, the way it's often talked about seems to end up being associated with kind of big, almost sort of robotic-like processes being implemented within companies. And yet it seems at its heart, it's it's almost the antithesis of that. In our industry, in my industry, specifically with software and software as a service, you know, the, they're really big. I consider them to be sort of violent words that are put into use and media, you know, this notion of disruptive technologies, disruptive being a very volatile word. I think that Kaizen as a practice is more of a human process, you know, uh, just trying to introduce a huge new way of maybe working or transportation when we think about Uber being a, a a disruptive technology. Uh, Kaizen sort of brings brings us back to the notion that none of these concepts are born overnight. They're very iterative, just like our lives, just like our relationships with one another, with our, our kids who are growing up. Uh, so it just gets us, it, for me at least, it reminds me of the fact that we have each and every day to live and to try to improve and to try to learn with everything that we're doing. And obviously with software, the things that we're doing go up on the internet or on the web. So we have a chance to come in tomorrow and to make an iterative improvement on it. And we don't have to think about everything as being this moonshot. Uh, so again, I think it aligns really well with, with software design, user experience design, and then marketing these businesses that ultimately are online. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And uh, I think it's perhaps something which is, um, coming at a, an appropriate time as well when you think about how some of these technologies are evolving and the need now for these software as a service businesses to be going beyond just those early adopters and those who are interested in the initially disruptive things. Once they become businesses which are operating at scale within the mass market, then inherently, you know, some of that sort of uh, impetus for, for real disruption and differentiation maybe needs to be replaced by processes which are more gradual, more iterative, more reflected of the fact that you have to bring a larger constituency along with you once you get into that mass market scale which we're seeing now for some of these these technologies. And it certainly makes for less sexy headlines. So I, I get the need to have something that, that gives a punch and gives drama to the media and to the releases that are that are in the newspapers or on the websites, you know, the the news news feeds that we all read. 
But again, being 10 years into building my own businesses, this is a way for me personally to get grounded again and more familiar with who I am, how humans build things, and, you know, almost just like evolution itself. It takes a little bit of time and you got to be patient. And again, Kaizen is sort of reinforced to me uh, a few simple exercises can be used every day to make a big change over time and to be patient and be appreciative of today and right now. You know, so it's kind of like mindfulness, but a little bit more practical, a little bit simpler too. Absolutely. Well, you know, the sort of thing that now springtime is arriving in the Northern Hemisphere might be the strategy to adopt when you start looking at all that yard work outside and realizing you've got to make a start somewhere. Oh, man, that's a good that's a good point. And cycling and getting ready to fit into my swim swim trunks for the summer, that type of thing. Yep. <laughs> Problems that we all face. <laughs> well, we'll add a, a link in the show notes so that people can go and check out the book and uh, see what uh, it's all about. Now, on the subject of, of software and, and iterative improvement, I did go off and have a look for something for the show and tell as well and came across uh, an application for the iPad called Liquid Text. Now, are you an iPad user, Craig? I am an iPad user, but more like a consumer than a, uh, I don't use it for any business tools right now at work. Well, this was one of the interesting things which struck me about this app liquid text was the focus that it has on allowing consumption and creation to coexist really within the same interface which is actually a pretty tricky thing to do i mean i think these days with mobile devices in particular the majority of our time is spent with them in a mode of consumption of one form or another, be it video or text, you know, that the mind frame we're in often when we're looking at these touchscreen devices, especially the larger ones, uh, is around consumption. Uh, and we actually did a, a bit of research around this about 18 months ago now under a theme of intersection where we are looking at how users pivot between that motivation to consume reading or consuming something which inspires them and then wanting to have some kind of creative act off the back of it to create some sort of response um, off the back of, of what they've seen. And this app, Liquid Text, really caught my imagination with this because you're able to have a split screen view where you can then combine freehand annotation with the benefits of quite structured digital notes and draw links and references between things that you're consuming within the piece of content on the one side and then your own freehand notes on the other side. And yet once you're done with that, you're then able to you know, restructure those relationships and get all of those kind of benefits which digital brings in the way you're able to then add some order to those those notes afterwards. You know, it reminds me of the utilities in Medium where you uh, select select an excerpt from a from a blog post and then it does something for you right it turns it into a tweet with a link automatically in there so and then it keeps track of you know other folks who have found interesting excerpts and whatnot we use envision a lot for our design and visual prototyping at we are mammoth and kin and dun dun and there there are certainly there's comment tools that are in Envision, just like in Google Docs, adding comments in line. And when I saw the videos, the demo videos for Liquid Text, it just 
it felt to me like it was 10 times that. It was so much more, I, a little bit hesitant to use a word, but intuitive. It was more, it was a lot easier to figure out, like I could almost give this to my, my five-year-old son and say, hey, go through these articles or go through this little flip book that I have on here, these designs, circle the things that you like and you don't like, and then they turn into these little like sort of like you said a little scrapbook on the side of notes i thought that that's way beyond anything that whatever google is doing envision and uh and uh, medium as well so i thought it's sort of a a next step like an evolution in terms of interactions well there's that old adage isn't there about how the the tools that we use come to define the the, the work that we do and for me that the real key difference with liquid text is that those tools that you use to, to add the annotations, they have much more creative freedom to them um, than the kind of things that we see within Envision and, and Google Docs and you know the, the, the normal sort of things, which a lot of people who are doing this kind of work are, are used to now. And being able to just have that sort of freehand element to it, both in the way you, you draw the links between references and the way you're then able to like sketch on top of those. For me, at least, um, you know, I found that was really compatible with the way that, that I like to work. So yeah, it was an interesting one. And again, we'll include a link in the show notes in case people want to go and check it out for themselves. But you mentioned the, Greg, the three different businesses which you're using some of these tools yourself for, for managing and for, for workflow, which I guess was one of the motivations for wanting to, to get together and talk in a bit more depth with you on the podcast, because it alludes to the fact that We Are Mammoth as a design agency has actually managed to incubate a couple of successful software businesses in their own right. So do you want to maybe just explain briefly uh, what Kin and Dundun do and where they came from? Sure. Uh, Dundun is the, the older of the two. It is a uh, like a bug and issue tracking tool for software teams. We built it several years ago out of a void of better solutions. Uh, we, at the time, were using something that was incredibly expensive that we couldn't get our clients to use because it was too technical. So we decided to build something much simpler, just frankly to use with our clients. We were doing some very large uh, technology consulting projects at the time, uh, very large long-term web apps that we were building. And we needed something that would be easily adopted by non-technical clients, right? So we built Dundun originally just as a very simple stripped down uh, website where you can enter in bugs or requests or issues, and then you can basically ping pong them over the table to a corresponding engineer or project manager on our team. The team did so well building it that after a couple more iterations and we put a little bit of lipstick around the UI, we put a marketing site up, we decided that you know we could probably expose this to other businesses like ours. And so we built it originally not with the intent of building a business, frankly, um, but after we saw how effective it was for ourselves and, you know, once we gave it to a couple of other companies, uh, we started charging for it. And, you know, we're several years on now and it's still a good sort of midway point between a, an extremely stripped down or maybe even an open source tool 
like a Bugzilla and something much bigger like a Jira. So again, we're positioned as being a bug and task management tool for software teams that are working with non-technology people. Uh, now, what about um, Kin HR? You mentioned a little bit about that earlier, but was that something which then came directly out of things that you were noticing from building Dundon, or was that a separate stream within the business? Sure. So a few years after we had originally built Dundon, we, we liked the idea of building more products. Our We Are Mammoth Consulting client pipeline was doing well, and we we're like, you know what? Let's let's do another product and go into it like we're going to be building a new company. So at the time, we were hiring a bunch of developers to supplement our, our consulting team, and we thought, we need some help. We need technology help to do the onboarding, so managing paperwork and tasks uh, that go to the new hire, that go to our internal team. And that's where KinHR was born. It was originally just for new hires, so helping to vet resumes and candidates and then getting them through the hiring experience. What we ended up doing was flipping that around and starting with the new hire onboarding experience and then working on retention, doing things like paperwork and data um, stores, employee performance reviews, time off management and team calendars and that type of thing. So we went into building Kin with the intent of marketing it and building a new business out of it. We launched that business in the summer of 2013. So it's been, you know, spot over three and a half years right now. And yeah, so both both products are running themselves right now. They have small teams uh, that are supporting them. And uh, it feels good. You know, we've got these these products out there that are recurring revenue. And they're also good exercises for us to build things for companies that aren't huge enterprise companies like like those we're attuned to working with at We Are Mammoth. So I guess the big question is, how have you managed to do it successfully? One of the, the virtues of running something like the MEX initiative is that I get to meet lots of people who have founded and run design agencies, and a huge number of them aspire to do this and often try to do this, and only a very small number ever seem to survive beyond that kind of concept phase, or maybe they have a run of six months or 12 months and then end up being abandoned. But these now are businesses which, you know, by all indications seem to be thriving as independent entities. So what's the secret? I think for us, the difference between we are mammoth and our DNA and that of a, a sort of more traditional design agency is that we have technology and engineering in our DNA. So these these projects that we took on, maybe as pet projects in the beginning, like Dundun, they immediately became something material. They immediately became a web project, something that we could assign an IP address to and then get a domain up, you know? So we were able to very quickly move and build something. So when we went into Kin, we had already had this sort of rinse and repeat experience of building Dundown and turning it into a marketable product. So it was a little bit easier for us to move from concept into design and UX and then into actual real engineering and to get a product out the door. So I think if I would 
credit one characteristic of our DNA, it would be engineering. We've all been engineers since day one. Now, that's interesting because I guess these days we are mammoth is probably best described generically as a design agency. And yet it sounds like there is that strong engineering culture within the the DNA. Uh, when you set out to create that as an, an agency business, did you see it as, as one versus the other of those? Or did you always imagine that the two things would, would unite and become part of a, a complete offering? In the beginning, it was necessity. So we looked at the jobs that we were leaving, me and my uh, two business partners, Koei and Mike. We were all engineers at our respective employers. So naturally, the, the go-to market strategy that we had in our minds was to take projects that had already been through a design phase or you know strategic design phase and it turned into UI and to take those and be like, you know what, we're the engineering team. We're going to run these things lean. We're going to cut out project management. Things are already designed. We were doing like a lot of agency work back in uh, 2006 and 2007 when we started. Um, so we just cut to the chase. We were, we were the programmers and we'd take it through very quickly on a fairly lean budget and get it into QA and then we'd launch the thing, you know, and we'd go into sort of a maintenance cycle or sort of a product uh, iteration cycle. So that's how we started. And everything else, frankly, came afterward. We started out saying we don't need project management. We are project managers ourselves. That's why we're doing this. So our clients all work with the engineers. And that was sort of part of our original DNA. That was a core value of ours that we'd have good self-managers. Over the years, as as that business grew and sort of morphed into more B2B enterprise data-driven application development, we needed to add in horizontal layers of project management and a little bit of account management. And then, you know, once we sort of turned our guys toward product development, basically digital product design and development, we started folding in more sort of innovation lab type exercises like design sprints, visual design, visual prototyping and whatnot. So our company's been iterative over the course of its 10 years. Um, and right now we're at a really good spot where we have all this DNA now where in contrast to some companies that are purely technology, we don't want to be competing with offshore technology companies that can do this stuff for a quarter of our pricing. Likewise, there are tons and tons and tons of design-only agencies out there that don't see the, the, uh, the launch of these products, and they're not involved in what comes afterward. I think what Tim Brown from IDEO calls sort of circular design, the ability to come back after a product is launched, listen to feedback, see what the data is telling us, and then be able to move in and make strategic decisions about feature additions or subtractions, and to be able to push that into engineering and move it. So I'm really happy with where we're ending up right now, uh, 10 years on with our DNA. 
I mean, absolutely. That that complete toolkit, I think, is a really valuable thing to be able to bring to solving some of these big challenges, either on behalf of, of clients as an agency or as you're finding with, with launching some of your own ventures as well. But it is quite a, a rare thing, I suppose, to have both that sort of sensibility towards the the user-centered aspects of design, which I can clearly hear is something which interests you and, and you have the, the, the knowledge and passion for, like your example around the, the Kaizen, but to also have that strength in engineering as well. So it, it makes me curious about where that's come from in your own educational background. Did you train originally as a, an engineer? Did you come through a, a different path? I grew up playing the trumpet and... I then learned to play the bass guitar and Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction was the one album that told me, Craig, you're going to play the bass guitar and you're going to be a rocker and that's going to be your life. So I didn't start out in engineering. I started out in music uh, and I went on to study at Berklee College of Music in Boston for my university years. I have a degree in musical composition and music musical performance and that didn't work out too well i stuck around a couple of years after my education and played a bunch of shows played in a bunch of bands but ultimately the love of my life my wife heike who i met in boston she was german and she moved back to germany so i i had to chase her over there and i wasn't going to take my guitar with uh so i made a switch in my career path at a time when I really didn't even know how to turn on a computer, I decided to get into programming. <laughs> so I enrolled at the University of Mannheim in Germany uh, to study computer science, and I failed utterly and completely. I couldn't speak German. I knew next to nothing about engineering. I'm pretty bad at mathematics as well, and that just made for a fairly... Um, um, flat start. So that kicked me into the web. And it was right at a time when Flash as a technology, you know, Macromedia Flash at the time, was coming onto its own. It was around Flash Player 4 or Flash 5, right when ActionScript was getting real powerful. Um, and that just, it stole my attention and everything else blurred out in my life. And I focused purely on what was going on in the browser. And that's really what got me into web development. The creativity, the confluence of creativity, what I call, I guess, artistic embellishment in UI, and then having this programming language, a scripting language, an action script to add in actual business logic and interactivity that for me was huge. So I went on to uh, get an internship at McCain Erickson in Frankfurt. And then I worked full time there for a couple of years before moving back to Chicago, working around the agencies here in Chicago. And then subsequently, I wrote a book with my now business partner about ActionScript and about flash programming. Um, and that sort of got us off to an academic relationship that led to us deciding to leave our jobs and start We Are Mammoth. And we recruited our, our third partner, Mike Sanders, um, within a couple of months. So when We Are Mammoth began, was the focus then still very much around 
Flash as the the technology you were deploying on behalf of clients. It it was it was a hundred a hundred percent. So one of my one of my partners, Kawei, who now lives in San Francisco, he went to Northwestern. He has a formal mathematics and uh, computer science uh, background and education. So he he added in the the data design, database design, uh, backend API sort of data services layer to our relationship. Um, but yeah, everything that we were doing in the beginning was Flash, and then it turned into Flex, and then you know <laughs> we could see what was coming, and uh, we moved away from being a pure Flash development studio. So we said, okay, now it's about data-driven apps, not about the medium or the plugin or the language per se, but about building these B two B data-driven web applications. And that's when we started getting into, you know, more standards compliant HTML and uh, JavaScript applications on the front end. So So that's um, a pretty big transition to make. I mean, given that you'd literally written the book on things like Flash and and ActionScript, and that had been a a foundation for those initial client projects. And I mean, it, it strikes me that, you know, there's perhaps an interesting lesson there for the next cycle of evolution, because clearly at some point we will evolve from the way things are being done today to the next big thing, be that something around, you know, virtual reality or multi-touch point experience design or, you know, whatever the big thing is that that comes next. So I mean, thinking back to that time and when you had to start making that that transition, how did you manage that? How did you, you phase that transition across to make sure that you didn't just get locked into to that knowledge that you had around Flash, which I guess was something that was starting to, to fade at that point? 2020 hindsight, I'd say it was almost Kaizen. It didn't happen overnight. It wasn't this big realization that we woke up to one day. I think it was it was well in advance of the, the famous Steve Jobs announcement where he, he said Flash player will not be on iOS devices. We had already started transitioning because we were building larger uh, CMS-driven web apps. We had already tried to build some of these applications in Flash and Flex, and they just didn't perform well. So it was almost like we're, we're seeing the tea leaves a little bit where our users were heading uh, in mobile devices, and we knew that Right now, when 2016 and 17 are coming, we're going to see a majority of these folks consuming web apps on their mobile devices. So we need to move toward that technology. So it it wasn't this. It wasn't waking up on a Wednesday morning and making that switch. It it took a little bit of time. And in terms of looking forward, I think it's the same same approach. We we got to watch the trends and we don't jump too fast. Like wait for things to prove themselves out a little bit, you know, in VR and um, AI, for example, right now, we're watching those trends. We're not jumping whole hog into them, but we're watching them, we're studying them, we're going to research them, we're going to prototype a little bit with them. Um, it's the same same idea with iOS and Android development. That's something that we've been getting into for the past year and a half now, which sounds a little bit late, frankly, but, you know, we've been a little bit conservative watching where things are going and making sure that Technology isn't driving the decisions for our business and for the best interests of our clients. Rather, it's utility and value that we're delivering to whomever is on the other end of the applications that we're building. Well, there's always that interesting balance, I think, for agencies around 
the work that you're doing in response to client demand and the things that you're doing internally to prepare yourself to be able to respond well to future client demand. You know, there's the balance between how much time you dedicate to both those things, the resources, you know, how much you're led by client trends versus by a view yourselves on on, on where it's going to go. But have you found over the years that there's a, a sort of healthy way for you as a business to balance that or things that you get from each of those channels from the, the client channel versus your sort of internal experiments how do you set the needle between those two things um by constantly watching where the needle is i think uh there are clients that become entrenched and we have to be careful that all of our energy doesn't go into a very entrenched technology stack right we have to constantly be searching for new opportunities that are going to feed our creativity a little bit that are going to be a little bit in the future rather than building on the past. And as a business person, that's that's a tough line to walk, uh, right? Because we need to have these big core staple clients and we need to support those technology stacks that we committed to several years ago. And that's great. And we do have op- opportunities to push them forward, but it's going to be in a more conservative manner. On the other side of things, we have the opportunity through Kin and Dundun and Design Sprints and some of our newer clients to push the boundaries a little bit and even say, you know what, the outcome of this may never see the light of day and that's okay. Like, let's go through some discovery. Let's go through some research. Let's go through some rapid prototyping. Let's do a couple of case studies. If this stuff never turns into an actual product or a feature in one of our software products, that's fine. But we got to keep flexing that muscle. And I feel like that's a constant sort of push and pull within our company. We always need to be watching out for what's next, but we can't always be jumping immediately into that. It, it requires too much energy and, frankly, too many resources. So we we always have to be evaluating. So I think it's sort of a cultural staple that we have on constantly talking with my uh, business partners about the past, the present, and the future, investing in Kin and Dundun in the best way that we can, um, ensuring that you know we're not pushing the envelope too much because, after all, these are business-critical tools. So we can try things, but let's make sure that whatever product we're pushing out the door isn't going to impede their ability to run their workplace or run their software products. So I wake up every day excited because these are big decisions to make almost every day. And I can't help but get sidetracked by big shiny objects in in the media that come out on an almost weekly basis. But it's my job to sort of look at the future, turn it into actionable strategies or ideas that, you know, our well-tuned product teams can, can take on and then they go through the prototyping process and decide whether it becomes a product. Now, I'm wondering here whether the existence of businesses like Kin and Dundun uh, and the fact that you are part of that rare club of agencies which has actually managed to, to incubate successful businesses of their own, does that make it easier or harder when you think about where some of those internal prototypes 
mice end up leading? I mean, do you have to then set a higher benchmark and say, well, could this be another business on the scale of, say, a kin or a dundun? Will it measure up to those expectations? Or does it allow you the hindsight, I suppose, now to be able to say, well, we've done this a couple of times before. Why shouldn't we be able to do it a third time? That's a good question. We have answered our own question of whether we're going to build another SaaS product, whether we're going to fund it ourselves, which both Ken and Dundon are, are entirely wholly owned by us. We have no outside capital, no outside investment or ownership. So these are ours. We've used our own blood, sweat and tears and money and people to build these products. We've answered that question, at least for the time being, and it's no. We're not looking to build another product right now. That doesn't mean that we stop thinking about ideas, that we stop vetting ideas, but it has meant that we're taking some of these learnings and approaches to incubating and building these ideas and turning them into products that people pay for, and we're turning those skills outward toward our, our clients both existing and new clients. So the way that I see it right now, at least for We Are Mammoth, is we're taking all of these learnings and we're going out and shopping them around to companies that may have innovation groups within them that need a team that can very quickly move from a design and a concept on a board into prototyping and then possibly into actual full-on production and seeing that through to uh, marketing, to customer experience and even like customer support playbooks, to pricing models, to running billing, you know, subscription models and uh, payment gateways and all that stuff. So we're taking all those learnings, we're turning them outward. That's how I'm getting sort of my creative muscle flexing going right now. I think that's a compelling offering and it gets to that idea of the virtuous circle, which I think is at the heart of all strong agencies, where the nature of the different experiments or the different strands, if you like, to the business end up feeding one another. So the fact that you have launched these businesses becomes something which not only is about the businesses themselves, but then becomes a set of practical skills that you're able to take back into client work. And, you know, at its best, I think all of those things feed that that virtuous cycle. I think... Everybody deserves a chance to clear their calendar and to think about the future a little bit. We're very caught up in things that went wrong in the past. We're very, very caught up in what's happening right now, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But to be able to clear off the calendar for, say, a week and to think about take workers' comp insurance uh, and think about how workers' comp insurance in the United States is going to play out technology-wise in the next five, six, or 10 years. And to get our clients bought into this, they clear their calendar, and we just think about stuff that may never actually come to fruition. But that's an incredibly powerful exercise and opportunity for folks to prove to themselves that they don't just have value in the here and now, that they can actually create ideas and contribute to the future of technology tomorrow in, in their company or across a whole industry or even on a global scale. And that's something that I want to offer 
to not only our clients, but also our, our team members across the country. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think having the opportunity to exercise that kind of discipline, as you say, to go off and actually dedicate some particular time and resources to exploring something in that speculative way can be a really powerful tool, um, both in terms of what it actually ends up creating at the end of it, but also in that overall process of keeping the, the talent, the skills, the motivation of the, uh, the, the people behind this sharp and, and enthusiastic, which is, you know, so essential to the, the progress of, of agencies as a whole. But I wanted to come back and talk a little bit about structure and the remote distribution of, of We Are Mammoth, because this, I suppose, is a bit of a defining feature for people who are finding out about you as a business today is that you do operate as a remote agency. And I'm curious as to you know, how that contributes to you being able to go through those kind of experiments that we've talked about or do the things that you've managed to achieve over the years, you know, whether that's something which you've only been able to do because of this remote structure that you have, or if that's you know just something which has been driven by other characteristics and decisions within the business. I don't know that being a remote workplace is a defining characteristic of We Are Mammoth or the products that we build or the services we provide to our clients. What I do know is it's a defining characteristic of our workplace and that it's taken several years for us to figure out what the right mix of remote and face-to-face really is. There are certain parts of our business that work fantastically <laughs> remote. So engineering, if we've got a if we've got a gig that's going into production and it's going to be two months of heads down engineering, being remote is fantastic. You get all the focus time that you need. You get that flow four or five hours a day, hopefully. But there are other opportunities, you know, when push comes to shove and there's a product coming up for release and folks need to be on site and working together through uh, QA or we get together to do some creative exercises like a design sprint, those things really are much more efficient and much more productive when we're on site. So we still have an office in Chicago and we use that um, to host meetings, to host design sprints and just to get folks together once in a while. There are 20, 20 plus folks working for us right now. I think at last count it was 16 or 17 different states. Everybody is in the US right now. The way it came to be was a little incidental. We were headquartered in Chicago. We needed to hire engineers right around the time when we were talking about building Ken. And we were having a tough time just identifying available engineering talent in Chicago. The competition is really high here. And so we said, okay, well, let's open it up. Let's just see if we can find folks who are happy wherever they are, and we'll set up, you know, a secure VPN and let them work remotely. So we did that with a couple of folks and it worked out well. And then lo and behold, a, a couple of folks who were on site in Chicago wanted to move away. And the question was, can I move and take my job with? And we couldn't find a reason not to say yes. 
frankly, we wanted these people to continue doing the excellent work that they were doing. And if they weren't happy in Chicago and they were going to go find happiness somewhere else in San Francisco or Florida or Portland, Oregon, then go for it. You know, take your job. You being happy in your community, in your residence, you know, in your private life is only going to make the work that you do for We Are Mammoth better. So it took a little bit of time, but now we're, I consider ourselves to be a remote first company. Uh, Every meeting that we do is online. It's all video. It's all audio. We use Slack and Basecamp and Dundun and Kin. All these tools, our entire workplace, our server infrastructure is remote. You know, we moved everything that was internal at our office offline into data centers that are not in Chicago anymore. And it's worked well. Um, You know, just me personally, both of my business partners are remote now. They're in Austin, Texas and San Francisco, respectively. So the people who I work with most are not here too. So I've started working from home in the past year more consistently. And that means that I'm home in the morning with my three kids. I'm here usually when they get home from school. I have two out of three meals with them a day. And I think I'm doing some of the best work of my life right now. And it's not in a tradi- traditional workplace. It's not at our office. What do you think that remote structure brings in terms of the access to additional creativity or inspiration? Because as you say, you, you've gone from a situation where you had people centralized in you know, one particular office, one particular neighborhood in one particular part of the States. But now on any given working day, you're tapping into the brains of people who might be seeing snow outside their window versus people who are seeing Californian sunshine outside their, their window. And they're all part of the, the same team. Are you finding that you're able to trace a, a direct line to an increase in the sort of inspirations and, and tangents which are, are coming into the, the creative process of the agency? I don't know that the geographic diversity of our team contributes to more creativity. What I do think is because our team saves a lot of time in commuting, you know, and running sort of a lean workplace because, after all, we're dependent on, you know, these apps that we're using and we're not, we don't have water coolers we can stand by in the office and whatnot. We're making more efficient decisions about our work time. And I think that that creates better energy folks aren't as burnt out we we still do because we have a lot of clients and a lot of projects going on we we do have uh what we call fragmentation like some of our engineers are split fairly thin at times between different projects you know that are in production or uh you know pre-production or post-production maintenance and that type of thing but because we're saving respectively, you know, individually 10 hours a week, folks are sleeping more. They have more private time. They're more satisfied with their non-work lives because they can go wherever they want to go. They can work remotely from their home um, or from a cruise ship, if you will. I think that we get more positive energy when it comes time to dial into work. What I should add is that even though 
we're dispersed geographically and we're remote first, we still have core business hours and we still do expect folks to be online to have some overlap during the regular business day. So, you know, our, our core business hours are 10 a.m. Central until 4 p.m. Central. So there's a little bit of liberty for folks. But overall, we do still say, great, you're working where you're happiest, but when still belongs a little bit to We Are Mammoth. And that reason is we need you to be here to collaborate, to answer questions, you know, and just be online and be a team member to other folks who may need you. So are there any tools which you've uh, started using recently, which give you a sense of what might become possible with the future of remote businesses? Because it's an area which I think is becoming very interesting for companies in all sorts of of industries, but particularly around professional services and and design that the power that working in this distributed way uh, can bring to a a business. Uh, But a lot of it is quite reliant on those those particular tools which you use to stitch it all together. Um, Is there anything that you're trying out beyond the ones that you're... (laughs) You're, you're iterating yourself internally, which are exciting you at the moment? You know, I, I kind of have a the opposite of the answer you're looking for um, in that we are using all of the tools that you may, you know, assume any remote company is using, any company, frankly, these days will be on Slack or Basecamp. What has pointed us back to is really the core values that make our our workplace tick and there are our employee values our team member values like ensuring you're consistent with your schedule every day being online being available uh, being able to teach in addition to learn and listen so if anything running what i think is a lean workplace remotely has pointed back to the more traditional notion of workplace values that truly do you know when you're remote we do have to lean on these things you have to be a good self-manager you have to be a good adult you have to be able to get out of bed by yourself in the morning you know um so if anything it's forced us to look beyond technology for the threads that keep us together as a community even when we're not in the same place beyond that we, we did a design sprint a couple of weeks ago looking at virtual higher education. And since it's a growing trend, at least in the United States, for universities to be offering online degrees, basically, folks are doing these things remotely. So there's almost a remote first education that's going on in college and then uh, post-graduate school, post-grad, so on and so forth. They're dialing into lectures. What we discovered in our research was that even though the market is growing, the amount of universities offering online courses is growing, the customer experience of both the professors and the students is kind of stagnant. They're not really happy with the experience that they're having. So we we spent a week looking into that idea and we thought, you know, let's try to avoid creating a new technology. There's enough technology out there. We don't think that the existing tools are the problem. And so we worked with the objective of not necessarily inventing 
new technology, rather <laughs> inventing more traditional notions of what an in-person education feels like. What are the core pieces of your college or university experience that are missing from virtual online education? And so we started building in tools into Slack, for example, uh, like using Slack bots to create profiles on new students and make introductions to other new students and just try to get at this idea of becoming a new student at a university, even though you and your, your um, fellow students may be in 20 or 30 different locations throughout the United States. So again, the, the more I think we as an industry look at technology as being the solution, the more it's making me define the problem as something that can only be solved by us remembering back to the times when we didn't have all this technology. What made our relationships so valuable? What made our education or workplace experiences successful? So what are we doing to bring those values forward and maybe modernize them and maybe use technology a little bit, but let's first think about what those core values are and then define the problem without already scoping the the outcome as being something that is going to be a new app or, or whatnot. So, you know, that's a little bit far away from the workplace, but, but that's the way that I'm thinking about our company right now. Um, what are the values? What are the things that we're doing that are beyond technology? What are those bonds that we've created that need to be replicated in a digital arena? We need to start there. And then technology can be overlaid. Maybe things need to be invented. But right now, you know, it's sort of a hodgepodge ecology of apps that we're using. And I think we're doing it pretty well. Uh, absolutely. I think that's often where the, the magic happens is where you can find those intersection points between the the, the kind of core truths that um, make us human and, and motivate us as humans, and then little bits of technology which make that easier faster cheaper more collaborative more available to, to more people um it's sometimes you know a fairly simple combination that ends up getting to to a remarkable result over time that that notion of, of time though is something which has come through quite strongly to me in this conversation with you craig it's it, it seems to be something which is is kind of inherent in the way you think about your businesses, um, that idea of, of longevity and where they've been and where they might go over time. And I, I was reading one of your blog posts, I think, from uh, 2016 when you guys celebrated the 10th anniversary of the business. Mm. And you were talking there about businesses not needing to be in such a, a big hurry to dominate the world and that actually the businesses that you admire most are the ones that, that kind of stay the course and, and, and go the, the distance, as it were. Where do you think that that view came from? Has that always been something which you've applied? You know, when, for instance, you were training as a, a musician, did you always have that patience? Is the, the patience something which you have found over time yourself? Good question. When we started our companies, our company at the time uh, in 2006, to be perfectly honest with you, we didn't start it with an end game we didn't know when we would be finished. 
which is to say we didn't start the company thinking, hey, in three years, we want to sell this. In three years, we want to cash out or close down, move on to do other things. So to be honest with you, the the anecdote that comes to mind when I describe our longevity or the notion of longevity in our companies, I reach back to uh, the book. I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up his name. The fella who founded Cliff Bar. Um, he wrote a book about starting Cliff, his company that makes you know like energy en- energy bars for for cyclists and endurance athletes. Yeah, I know them well. They have been a, a good friend on many a long journey. Indeed, and a long journey is the way that he and they look at their their business as well. And so he, there's a there's a section in his book where he talks about him taking some cycling journeys in in Europe, and him and his buddy set out, and they're they immediately looked at a map of Europe and they followed some of the big roads and they were these big highways, and they got on them and they had a miserable time. And there was sort of this realization that they were looking too big, right? They had these huge maps and they didn't have smaller details of more local roads. So when they found like a region in, say, Piedmont, Italy, um, they realized that it was the white roads on these maps that were going to be most interesting for them. They were roads that would go up the side of a mountain and just terminate there and leave them stranded on the side of a glacier. And he's like, that's fantastic. You know, generally speaking for his business, then he says, you know, we have a general direction that we want to go toward. We have a mission, but we don't have an end game. And when he looked back at the roads as an anecdote, he said, those red roads, those really big highways on those big maps, they were for people who had a destination. They were going from point A to point B and they didn't care about the journey between those points. Whereas for him, what's most important to him is the journey. It's not getting from A to B in the quickest amount of time. It's everything in between. It's the people he meets along the way. It's the products he gets to maybe research and discover but never launch or even launch and fail. For him, that's the most fruitful part of being an entrepreneur. So that's something that I've really related to for our own company. I can't tell you what the outcome is going to be ultimately. We're 10 years deep with We Are Mammoth. We're six or seven years deep with Dundon, three and a half years deep with Kin. We don't have an intent to sell any of these things. We have not looked for outside investment to date. I don't know. What I do know is that every day, every week, every month, every year, I come to work and I get a new adventure. And sometimes I'm a little bit bored. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed. Sometimes I'm scared. Sometimes I'm excited. Sometimes I'm so dialed in and focused on building a new product for a client or jamming out on like what we're doing right now, a new wearemammoth.com website. I, I just had the blinders on to everything else going on. And I think that that's the most exciting, valuable part of being an entrepreneur for me right now. Um, And I think that that plays out for our company at large as well. Well, look, Craig, thank you very much indeed for sharing some of the journey so far with us and the the listeners of the MEX podcast. 
Um, it's going to be fascinating to see where it goes in 10 years' time, and perhaps we'll have to reconnect then, if not before, and uh, get an update on what that journey has been like. But thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this edition. There is a bumper crop of show notes for this episode. You can find links to all of the various books and people and apps that Craig and I talked about. Just head over to mobileuserexperience.com and click on the podcast section where you will find all of those different links and references to explore. And while you're there, do please take a moment to send a link to the show to whoever you think will enjoy it most. Last but not least, we love to hear your feedback on what we're doing with the Mech's podcast. You can email us. It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com or we're on Twitter. So send us a tweet at mechsfeed. We'll be back in two weeks' time with the next edition. But until then, thanks for listening. Goodbye.